the end of chapter 2, Paul is tying various loose ends together. Chapter 1, the theme of chapter 1 was the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that magnificent description of Jesus in verses 15 through 20. Then Paul says in chapter 2, if you don't keep Christ at the center, your philosophy, your study of philosophy has no anchor, has no beginning point. And then he works in asceticism and mysticism. Asceticism, a life of self-denial. Mysticism, what we talked a little bit bit about last week. And now he's concluding it in, in verse 28. If Christ, you could even translate that first class condition in Greek, since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I'm sure most of your translations have quotation marks around those phrases in verse 21. They are legalistic, ascetic requirements that the false teachers are leveling at the church there at Colossae. And notice what Paul does. He contrasts those with their position in Christ. Since you have died in Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. The Greek word there is stoicheia. Most would agree that that is referring to the demonic power behind these false teachings, elemental spirits of the world, who are fostering this legalistic kind of thinking. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Now let's stop there for just a minute. We talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago. What is the objective of legalistic teaching? Do you understand my question? If you don't understand my question, ask me to clarify it. Domination. I'm sorry? Domination. Well, that could, so that whoever is teaching it can control you. But there's another, in terms of your relationship with God, what does the legalist say? What's the legalist goal? Performance. Performance. Do these things, and you'll merit the favor of God. Do these things carefully and meticulously, and that that earns favor with God. That pleases God. True or false? False. Okay, if we take a vote, it sounds like it's about evenly divided here. <laughs> yes, that's right. It. Can you merit the favor of God? You can't. I mean, that is the whole point of even the law in the Old Testament. And that's the problem that many still have in trying to interpret and understand the law of the Old Testament. But certainly by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had prostituted the law into a legalistic system. Do this, do this, do this, and you're in the favor of God. And, you know, we, if you read like, um, for example, in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is at the, uh, the pools of Bethesda, and he heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, your, your little uh, bed that you have, and walk. And what do the Pharisees say? Praise God, the man's healed 38 years. Is that what they say? No. You're violating the Sabbath by carrying your mat. You think, What? <laughs> They should be absolutely overjoyed that this man, who for 38 years couldn't walk, is now walking. Yes, amen. 
But they're focusing on, you violated the Sabbath. Is that what the law is all about? Does the law have no compassion in it? Of course it does. But this is what Paul is saying. Your position in Christ, since you died to the stoike of this world, why would you be willing to submit to these regulations? You're, you don't need to merit God's favor. That's why Jesus came. And that's the, opposite, the whole opposite pole, if you will, of these legalistic strictures is the grace of God. And Paul is just driving home in a, in a very nuanced way because you've experienced the grace of God and have your position now in him is you're dead to these things. <laughs> Why do you keep going back to them? And so it's almost the language and even the tone of it, if we would hear him say it, but certainly the tone of it in the words he chooses is, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you'd be willing to do this. Because he says, these things all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. And then he just, he adds an evaluation of it in verse 23 and, and into 24. These, meaning these kinds of regulations, have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom. But in reality, they're promoting self, this is how the ESV translates this, they're promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let's take that apart. They appear to be wise. And someone who follows these strictures, to the T they follow them. <gasps> Such a religious person. <gasps> oh, look at how saintly and holy that man is. Look at what he does. Paul says, those things are based on self-made religion. Those things are based on a lifestyle of self-denial, of severity to the body. That's, in effect, what asceticism did, does. I'm going I'm to be severe in treating and mastering my body, mastering my flesh, and that will be so pleasing to God. You know what Paul says about that? that actually produces what you're trying to conquer. Now let's think about this for just a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul teaches, I'm going to use this as an illustration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul teaches that celibacy is a spiritual gift. Some people have the gift of celibacy. And then Paul says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. this is his point, the only way you know if you have that gift is if you don't struggle with lust. If you struggle with lust, you don't have the gift. So what's his counsel? Get married. So if you struggle with that, you don't have that spiritual gift. So what do you do? This is what happened in the church. Now follow me very carefully here. What happens in the church and its history is you make celibacy a test of moral and spiritual leadership. And you universalize that. Every spiritual leader must take a vow of celibacy. What has that shown? What he says at the very end. 
It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you don't have the gift of celibacy and you try to take that gift of celibacy, what is it going to end up actually doing? Fostering the very thing you don't want it to do, which is sexual immorality. So you see, again, that's why, look at, look at how self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body. I'll conquer it. I'll master it on my own. And Paul says, if that is your view of religiosity, if that is your view of the spiritual life, you're going to end up actually indulging the thing you actually want to conquer. So he doesn't, he doesn't go any further with that. He does not go any further with that. In other parts of his writings, he says, that's why. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be able to overcome these things that are actually destroying you. And what's the ninth fruit of the Spirit, the very last one? Self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So you, you look at this holistically throughout the teachings of Scripture, including the Old Testament, this, this is where so many false religions, so many of the cults, end up promoting, promoting self-made, man-made, human-oriented re- regulations and restrictions, and it actually fosters the very thing you're trying to deal with and conquer. And, I mean, there, there, are, there are almost no exceptions to this throughout the history of, of, of all religiosity and spiritual movements. In, in the last several thousand years. So this is, this is an insightful, this is an insightful conclusion that Paul's reaching. That when you set up man-made regulations to get control of the sinful lusts and habits that you have, you're going to end up actually fostering the very things you want to try to conquer. This is not the way to do it. Now again, he doesn't go any further with this. You have to, have, in brackets, he should have put, see my other letters for the solution. So he, but he doesn't do that here. He just drops this incredibly important insight on the Colossians. Your false teachers are promoting these things. And you're probably already observing they're actually fostering the very things that you're trying to control. And you can't do it. So those religions that have, like, the celibacy thing, so where do they get their theological position for that? Like Catholic Church, for example. <laughs> well, it's a it's both a Pandora's box and a bunny trail, and I'm trying to decide whether I want to open that or go down that. <laughs> Daniel, there is no doubt that some of the giants in the history of the church have been celibate. There, I mean, there's no doubt about that. And that's one of the reasons, again, I, I refer you back to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about celibacy as a spiritual gift, a charismata from God. But he says, how do you know if you don't have that gift, if you struggle with lust? So that's the test that he sets up. I'm going to simplify, I'm going to make this very simple, but the answer to your question, without going into a number of historical developments, is 
there were some significant leaders in the early church that were celibate. But what happened over several hundred years is they universalized that practice for all spiritual leaders because he, or in some cases even she, there there were some, some women, but because they had a vow of celibacy and look at the significant things they did, therefore every spiritual leader should be celibate. That's a non sequitur. That doesn't necessarily follow, and that's one of the that's one of the tragedies. Uh, at least personally, I think it's one of the tragedies of of assigning that as a test of spiritual leadership. And if you know anything in the, in the 1500s, when Martin Luther um, settled his struggle and came to know Christ and so on, in 1525 he did an unbelievable thing. Uh, it was absolutely unbelievable and unimaginable. He married a former nun, Catherine von Bora. And what happened was then every major leader of the Reformation all rejected that teaching that spiritual leadership is marked by celibacy, and they got married. John Calvin did that. Ulrich Zwingli did that. Menno Simons did that. All of the major leaders said, I can't find the teaching of celibacy as a mark of spiritual leadership in the Bible, therefore I'm going to get married. And uh, so that's all I'll say about that. There aren't any other questions, are there, like that? Ed? There was a time, though, when priests married. That's correct. That's correct. That's why I said hundreds of years. That's correct. Their sons inherited land. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. The idea of celibacy as a mark of spiritual leadership comes later in the history of the church. And after all, I mean, just think of one example, Peter. Peter was married. We know he was married. The New Testament talks about him being married. But it's a difficult, and and as you know, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with what is going on right now even, the church, the institutionalized church is really struggling with this issue because there's a shortage of priests, there's a shortage of spiritual leaders, and they just had a major meeting where they gave a recommendation to Pope Francis to allow priests in the Amazon Valley in Brazil to marry. Why? Because there's an abominable shortage of priests down there. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to mean that, make that sound cynical, but, I mean, they're facing this kind of crisis, and, and they're saying that it, it, it's a recommendation we're making that we should allow priests in certain parts of the world to marry. Well, what's going to happen is, I don't know if he'll approve of that or not, but what's going to happen is they open that door, and they're never going to close it. They'll never be able to close that door. It'll just start to, and so, I mean, it's testing, and, and Ed's correct, this comes later in the history of the church, but it's testing a doctrine now and this is my opinion, you may disagree with me, that has no foundation in the Bible. That principle that spiritual leaderships are always celibate. I don't think that has foundation in the Bible. But the the, the Roman Catholic Church does. The Eastern Orthodox Church uh, has celibacy, but only, only those above the office of bishop. The common ordinary Orthodox priest in uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they are married. Most of them, I spent some time with one. I was writing my book on on uh, worldviews, and I did the chapter on Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, he was married and he had several children, and that would be unheard of in the Western Church. 
but it's very common in Eastern Church. Now, above the office of bishop, there is the vow of celibacy in Eastern Orthodox Church. Can I get out of this now? Would that be all right? Okay, Jim. Oh, okay. Necessarily, but so the objective of these teachers was to move. I mean, to do that class, do not handle, do not all of these things was to gain approval from God, not to achieve a higher sense of moral behavior and conduct. Is that correct? It actually could be both. It could be flip sides of the same coin. Part of part of this, and this is the genesis of what will become Gnosticism, is that it's only an elite few that really reach this higher spiritual plane. This is part of the path to that. But it also is, because it's obviously a legalistic stricture, this is what pleases God. This is what merits favor with God. So it's it's two it, two things are going on here. This, there is an elite group of people that are going to meet all of these spiritual steps up the ladder. Here's part of them. Can you meet them? It's pleasing to God, and he'll honor that because you're going to move you up. And, and it's just, it, it's, it's a thoroughly unbiblical approach to spirituality. And when you read the Apostle Paul's letters, he keeps using one term over and over again, all. All, 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 all. The Greek word is pantas. It's all. This is for everybody. There is no spiritual elite in Christianity. Galatians 3.28, at the cross, everyone's equal. There is no spiritual elite. And that's why it's it's one of the marks of a cult. Every cult is going to teach there's a certain super spiritual group that makes it. And and I'll just choose them because it's so clear. The JWs are one of them. There's an elite group, and it comes from Revelation 7. It's 144,000. And your goal is to do enough to get into that elite. Well, the thing is, you don't know what you can do to get there. You sort of are missionaries, and they're vibrant, but they never know if they've done enough to make it. Is that how God wants you to look at your spiritual life? No. Because what's stamped across, I'm really getting animated about this. I may settle down a bit. What, what is just stamped across all of Paul's theology is a five-letter word, grace. Amen. It's grace. You cannot merit God's favor. In Isaiah, he says, your righteousness is like filthy rags to me. That's pretty categorical. I mean, there's not a lot of ambiguity in that statement. That's why you need an alien righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ applied to your life by faith. That's what's called justification. That is what makes you acceptable to me. And who did that? I did it for you through Christ. So Paul is, Paul's words are, are uh, very passionate here. This is a bunch of garbage. Because what it actually does is it doesn't stop the indulgence of the flesh which is what it's supposed to be doing, but it doesn't. It actually fosters the indulgence of the flesh. And it's, again, one of the tragic records of history is that any movement that tries to foster this actually ends up to being very degraded, very debauched, and very dysfunctional. Because they're trying, based on the flesh, to overcome 
evil things of, of, of the flesh, and you can't do it. And human, human, it's what he says, self-made religion says from the of the body. That is not what the spiritual life is all about. But he does give criterion for elders. Yes, but who are they? They're the leaders of the church or the local church. And they, I guess my summarization is they're more spiritually mature. Not necessarily elite, but they're more spiritually mature. Well, yes, and, and, and I think that the, the familiar place is to look for that First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But you were right. That's the right term to use there. And I like to put it this way. I talk at our church. That's how we talk about it. We're not interested in just filling slots. Right. We want people who are spiritually mature because they're going to have significant responsibilities on their, soldier, on their shoulders. And spiritual leaders, in the words of Ephesians 4, are to equip the saints for ministry. And so it's that principle of those, those who have walked with Christ longer, presumably, are going to be able to help the new who are just beginning their journey with Christ, help to, help to grow them, help to decide, you know, the words disciple. And it's the same, another aspect of that is you see throughout the scriptures those who are older should help train and model those who are younger. That's a common sense principle, but it's not talking about a spiritual elite. I mean, the elite is, the idea of that is, and this is very very central to this false teaching, is that we've really made it. Well, it's an stem versus a servant leadership. Exactly. It is totally contrary to the servant leadership principle, which is throughout the Bible. I mean, that's a, I'm glad you brought that. That's a good qualifier there. But that's not an elite. That's a common sense observation that's throughout the Proverbs. Those, those who have walked with the Lord longer have a degree of wisdom that the younger in Christ don't. The younger in Christ learn from the older in Christ. That's a, just a, that's a common sense principle. They're not better than these. They're just further along in the walk with Christ and can help. Okay. Would I be able to leave that? All right. Mm-hmm. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. If you're noticing in your outline what I did here, he has given the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus, chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 2. If you leave Christ out, philosophy, mysticism, asceticism, legalism are all fallacies and are self-destructive. Now, he comes back. So what I want to do is I, now just follow my language here. I want to remind you that Christianity is a complete world and life view that affects how you live. So he's going to summarize that world and life view in the first four verses and then say, okay, here is how this world and life view affects how you live. And that's the rest of the chat, the rest of the book. Did, do you understand what I just said? So what I tried to do up here on this map is three, one through four, that new world in life view. It's rooted in our position in Christ. That then affects we have a brand new perspective about everything, and we have a brand new center point for our thought life, which is really germane to what he's just been doing in chapter two. And so he's going to say, now look at how he does this. The very first word of chapter uh, 3, verse 1 is if. That's a first-class condition in Greek. You could translate that since. It's an assumed 
fact to be true. Since, therefore, you have been raised with Christ. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Raised with Christ? I wasn't there in A.D. 33 when he came out of the grave. I don't think you were. I mean, I'm the oldest one here. If I wasn't there, you weren't there. That's not what he means. What is he talking about? It's taking you back to Romans chapter 6. If you put your faith in Christ, you're dead, buried, and resurrected with Jesus. That's your position. When God looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. Jim Ekman, dead, buried, and resurrected with my son. Been declared righteous, judicially forgiven. Paul is reminding him, since this is your position, since this is your identity, since this is who you are, since this is how God the Father looks at you, how should that affect how you live? Set, or rather seek, the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what is he saying? Since this is your position, 1A, it should give you a brand new perspective about life. And I like to put it this way, an eternal perspective about life. Because your focus now is on Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is where you're headed. That's, you know, when you die, that's where you're going to be. But now you're shaping and framing everything around that eternal dimension of life. Eternal life begins the moment you put your faith in Christ. That, that utter and complete transformation is positionally true and practically being affected in your life. We call that sanctification. So he's saying, because of your position, this should affect how you live. And the first characteristic is, you now have an eternal perspective about things. All right, what does that mean? Well, an eternal perspective about things is I, I understand that the material things of life are decaying and gradually going to pass away. But I also have this perspective about things. 1 Corinthians 10.31 That whatever I eat, whatever I drink, whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God. That's an eternal perspective. So is God interested now? I've come to faith in Christ. This is my new position. Is God only interested in what I do on Sunday morning at 11 a.m.? No. Okay, two of you said no. So the rest of you, you're not sure? So, I mean, the answer is, yes, he's interested in everything. He's interested in everything I do. And so you go through, and this is what he's going to be doing in the rest of the book. These are the things God's interested in. These are the things that God wants you to think about and apply and how he wants you to live. Because you see, genuine biblical Christianity, and more and more you just have to add all these adjectives to talking about Christianity. Because you just say Christianity today, it's almost a meaningless word. It, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. You've got to find what you mean by Christianity. But assuming you know what I'm talking, genuine biblical Christianity is... Is, is not just, I know where I'm going when I die. Genuine biblical Christianity is a total transformation about everything in life. And yet you, 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 you're coming to understand that. And so he's saying, and so you look at, you look at the scriptures, you see, I, I'll choose one example. In Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1, a wonderful passage in the biblical ethic of work. 
And Paul says there, uh, you work diligently. You work sincerely. Because you really are serving the Lord Christ. And in verse 24, this is so important to God, he's going to reward you for this. You think, what? What? Peter does? Yes, Peter does the same thing in his epistles. I mean, it's so the transformation and the eternal dimension of life means I now look at my work, what I do for a living, support my family, etc., through the grid of God is so interested and so important to him how I do it that has an eternal reward attached to it. Really? Yeah, that's what he says. And he's writing this to a society where the main focus of work is slavery. Almost all the work in the ancient world was done by slaves. Now, again, you have to, the slavery of the ancient world is a bit different than slavery in the pre-Civil War South. But my point is, that's a radical idea for a slave that comes to know Christ. There's now an eternal dimension to what I look, what I do, and I have to listen to my master, I have to do what my master wants. And you see, oh my goodness, that's transformational. And he's just saying, everything you do, and so... This eternal perspective of your life now, set your things on the mind, set your, uh, set, seek things that are above. I'm seeking things that are above. I'm seeking the values that are important to God, the virtues that are important to God, the standards that are important to God, because that's what he means. Set your, seek the things that are above. I'm seeking God's glory, not my own. I'm seeking to serve as Jesus served, not myself. And you start to see, oh my goodness, this is reshaping everything about my life. And so that's part of the transformation because before we come to know Christ, we're focused totally on the temporal, totally, totally on serving ourselves. It's a very selfish, self-indulgent way of living. You come to know Christ, that starts to change. And he said, because of who you are, you should now seek the values and standards and virtues of Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Because he's your Lord. He's your master. He's your king. Amen. You know, um, also, I won the race. And that's the prize. And when, as we live as Christians throughout our lives, we can think of a, a marathon runner or any kind of runner Yes, he gets a medal at the end. But just knowing the preparation and the actual <clears throat> doing it is very satisfying to that person. Mm -hmm. As it would be with us as Christians, as we live our life, it is satisfying to us. It's not like it's an arduous task. And, and I think there's energy and, and dedication Generally, just from that alone, the satisfaction. So yes, we get something at the end, but how much more have we enjoyed before that time, too? Well, I mean that's absolutely right because it, you know we often talk this way, but seeking the things that are above brings purpose and meaning to life. Solomon talks about this so much. If you just live for the moment, what do you start to realize? The older I'm getting, well, why am I just living from the moment? And I love that part of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I have been wise with all my money. I have a well-balanced portfolio, and it's earning 7% interest a year. And you know what? I'm near death. What am I, what's going to happen to all that? 
It's all going to go to my kids, and they're a bunch of fools. That's exactly what he says. And so then he asks this question, why have I been so wise? What Paul is saying here corrects all that. Totally corrects it. So that doesn't mean you don't invest. That doesn't mean that's not what it means. It just means now you're looking at how do I take what God has blessed me with and trusted me with to manage it well for his glory. And so, I mean, it, it's, it's a whole new way of thinking and living, and that becomes really, really, really fulfilling. And really, it's, it's, it's joyful because, as this is part of what Paul's getting at, what I want to hear is Jesus say to me, well done. Amen. Bob Buford wrote a book simply entitled, Finishing Well. I want to finish well. And I mean, I, don't, I didn't mean I do. I mean, although I do, but it's, that's, he says that's the question you want to ask yourself. And so that's part of what he's saying here. And I, that's why I like to, I've said it in several times. Set, seek the things that are about, okay, what does that mean? What are the things that are, what are the values and virtues and standards that come from Christ that make life meaningful, that give purpose to life, that this whole new perspective about things? You, you've got to search the scriptures. You have, to, you have to renew your mind on those things. This is what's important to God, and because this is what's important to God, it's now important to me. And I, yeah, I mean, you've, I, I've told you about this man that, uh, who's a businessman here in town and came to the Lord later in his life and um, he was married, had two girls. He was an incredibly successful businessman and he lost his family because he was just so focused. He was very, not a real moral man and he came to know the Lord and i never forget, we were down at Cassio's restaurant and he was sitting across the table and he said, Jim, I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. And just to, to then, as he came to know Christ, and just what started, what changed, was he still successful? Yes. Was he still earning lots of money? Yeah, but a whole, whole new perspective about things. And, I mean, it's just, that's part of what Paul is, here's your position. That's secure. That's your identity. That's who you are. Now, reorient everything. Have a whole new perspective about life. You're looking at the eternal perspective of things. Because this temporal stuff's going to pass away. Now, it doesn't mean this temporal stuff isn't important, because it is important to God. He's trusted you with it and so on. But you're, you're now looking at it through a different grid. You're thinking differently about it. Okay? Uh, yeah, Fred. So, seek the things is basically seek the things, making you aware that you're no longer under the power of sin. That's right. That you are to work on your sanctification. Yeah, that part of the, that's right, part of the sanctifying process, which is what he's really talking about here, involves a gaining a whole new perspective, an eternal perspective about things. And that, as we already, because we talked about that many, it's, it's Woody's favorite word, it's the process. That process, that takes time. You don't come to know Christ one day, and then what, next day you have the eternal perspective about everything. No, it's going to take a while. But that's all right. But your beginning is you, you read the Word of God, you hear it proclaimed and exposited and so on. You're beginning to understand what that means. But it's, it's a tremendously liberating, and I know you guys know this, but it's a tremendously liberating way to live. 
God's trusted me with this. Now I'm going for it. God's trusted me with this. I'm going to manage it well. Amen. God's trusted me with this ministry. I'm going to do this to his glory. I mean, whatever it is, you're now saying, and this is where prayer comes in and talking to the Lord about it, I'm reordering my priorities. It may not change a thing what you do for a living. It may not change anything, particularly in that area, but you've got a whole new perspective about it. And when you are around people like that, you see the difference. You really do. You see the difference in how they think about and live their lives. And then he continues in verse 2, so I called that a new attitude, a new thought life. Set your mind. So now seek. That's your passion. Seek the eternal significance of things. Secondly, change your thought patterns. Change your thought life. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so, you know, I don't know how to paraphrase this other than something like this. Your, your whole thought life and your whole thought patterns must change. Let's practically talk about that. How do I change my thought life and my thought patterns? Think of a computer. What? Reboot. Okay, reboot. Yes. And, and so, yeah, what are you programming into your thought life? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's Christ. It's his word. I mean, okay, you come to know the Lord. You, you made that decision of faith. You're beginning to understand the eternal perspective of things in life that bring meaning and purpose and fulfillment to life. And, and I'm going to be extremely radical and extreme here. But you also watch lots of pornographic films, read lots of smut literature. Is, is that the way to reprogram your mind? Now, that's an extreme. Yes. That, that's not how you do it, is it? <clears throat> Paul speaks in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed. How? By renewing of your mind. By a renewing of your mind. That's a pretty important statement there. So my transformation is tied into my thought life. And so that's why, and listen, every single one of you in this room, and, and I, I think many of you are already doing it, but many of you have already started this, but you must develop a strategy for this kind of thing in your life, a strategy for holiness in this area of your life. I mean, I can't tell you how to do that. I don't know what your habits are. I don't know, but whatever it is, you have, to, you have to rethink that. So what am I putting into my mind? And if a part of it is not, you know, reading God's word, but also, I mean, listening to it, you hear it exposited on a Sunday morning. But even, you know, and again, you don't have to do it this way, but maybe a way to do it is as you're driving in your car, that's a time where you're just putting things into your mind that are of the Lord. You're listening to a tape, or are you listening to Christian music? I don't know what, however you do it. But you're just, you're putting in your mind the things that are constantly reminding you. Another way of thinking about it is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says to the Philippians, he loves that church. He has some of the most wonderful things to say about that church. But he says, think on these things. 
Do you remember the list? Some of you are looking at me like I'm speaking in German or something. So let's turn to Philippians 4.8. Last night I repaired something for my wife and got a tiny bit of glue on the tip of my thumb. And so my phone doesn't recognize my fingerprint anymore. It doesn't know it. I don't know why I'm telling you. It's just been a really interesting development in my life. So it takes me longer to get into my phone. But I want you to read with me Philippians 4.8 if I can ever get this thing to boot up. 4.8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what's the imperative verb? Think about these things. Think about these things. That's your thought life. Now, don't ask me, okay, what should I do? What should my daily schedule look like? What should, I'm not going to tell you that. I, I mean, I, that's not my responsibility. But it is your responsibility to take a passage like this, and what Paul says in the passage we're studying right now in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Philippians 4.8 is a way to do that. Think about these things. True. I just put them, I've, I've taught this, so I just put it as a list. True, and define that. Honorable, define that. Just, and define that. Pure, define that. Lovely, define that. Commendable, define that. Excellent, arete, define that. Worthy of praise, define that. And then you say, okay, what am I doing now? What am I putting into my thoughts now, my, my mind now? Does it match up with those? See, I'm not going to tell you what you read, what you watch, because some of you can watch certain things or read It has a neutral effect on you. It doesn't really affect you. Others can be something very innocuous and very simple, but it still has a profound effect on you in a negative way. So you would say to yourself, that's probably something I should not read anymore. I mean, I'm just making that up. I don't have anything particularly in mind, but... It's what, it, what he's saying is there, you must do that. These are commands. They're not suggesting you must do this. And so therefore you don't have to have a strategy about it. Okay, what does that mean to me? Because my approach to this is going to be different than Joel's. Because Joel has a totally different schedule, a totally different set of responsibilities. But for both of it, what is it? There are certain things you have to be consciously aware of that goes into your mind. That programs your thought life. And to be very blunt, in the words of Solomon in the Proverbs, you're a fool if you don't do that. Now, I mean, that's what he says. That's not a Jim Ekman quote. That's a Solomon quote. But it's just, this, God is just saying to you, through to me, to all of us, through his word here in, in, in Colossians 3.2 and in Philippians 4.8, your thought life is important to me. Because your thought life is, is part of what I want to help you reorient, and, and it's part of the transformation process. So, you know, together, let's get serious about that. So let's sit down, and just you, this is you and the Lord talking. And, okay, Lord, here, here are the things that you think are important for me to think about. How does that affect me? What, what is it that I'm putting into my mind that I know, I know it's having a negative impact 
And God is saying, okay, you've identified that? Part of your strategy is, I'm just not going to allow that into my mind anymore. And I'm going to substitute it with something else. Now, don't, I'm not going to tell you what that is. I'm not going to tell you what you should and should. That, that's, I don't have the, Martin Luther used to say, I do not have the right to bind your conscience with my convictions. But I am telling you, develop convictions about these things. Because you know where you're vulnerable. I don't, but you do. And to be intellectually honest before the Lord is you're saying, okay, set your minds on things of the, that are above. I mean, that just sounds so spiritual. Amen to that. Yes, brother, preach it. What does that mean to me? I don't know. It just really sounds good. Paul does not want us to respond like that. Paul wants us to set your mind on things that are above. Renew your be transformed, not conformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4. All of those passages are talking about the same thing. So what does that mean to you? What, what does that mean for us? And I'm telling you, in, I, I think a lot of you can agree with this, but in my life, that has probably been the most important thing I've done over the years of my walk with the Lord. It's just being disciplined and aware and conscious of what I'm letting into my mind. But that can, that can, to a young believer, that can sound insurmountable. That's right. That's right. So one thing you covered a couple months ago in Second Peter 1.5, where it talked about you fill your mind with that, how it affects you and where you go. That's right. I had to go find where it was. Second <laughs> Peter. Yes. Yes. that's why, that's why the most important thing to communicate to a young believer is not all that I was just saying, but you know, now that you belong to Jesus and this is your position, now it's really important that you spend time in His Word. That you fill your mind because that is that's the beginning point of. That's where like Peter's voice a little better than Paul's because. It's very personal. Here's how you keep that. Here's what you, what you do with that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good comment. That's a good comment. Jim, and the Holy Spirit here serves what role in that capacity? Well, I mean, that it's central. I mean, it's, it's all of this these things mixed together in our walk with the Lord. But it is the Holy Spirit who indwells us that will also motivate and give us the encouragement to keep focusing on these kinds of things. He is our teacher. He is our guide. I mean, they're all the things Jesus talks about when he's talking about the spiritual role in John 14, 15, and 16. And all of that meshes together because it's the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who wants us to do these things, and is going to empower and encourage us to do it. More of the process. More of the process. You got it, Woody. You got it, Woody. But it's so it it it's so fulfilling and enriching to be able to see this process work. Cleansing your thought life. It takes years, years. And in one sense, we'll always wrestle with that till the Lord comes back for us, so we go to be with Him. But it, it but yet at the same time, you, you just you get to a point, and you just say, "Okay, that I, I I'm I'm not going to let that into my mind." And that's why memorization of Scripture or going to the Word of God, just 
those things, then you're, you're quickly, you quickly, I know what to do with this. I know what to do with this. Lord, help me. And it's, I, I've done that zillions of times in my life. One of those straight-hour prayers to Jesus. Lord, help me with this thought. I do not want to dwell on this. Help me. Is he interested in you praying like that? You bet he is. You bet he is. And his Holy Spirit will help that. But it's, you, 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 just, you learn to develop that strategy of how you deal with these things. Because your thought, you know, James in one, uh, James chapter 1, 13 uh, through about 16, he talks about the evolution of sin. Uh, that, I don't mean biologically, but the development of sin. Starts with a thought, becomes a desire, produces an action. So where's the most important thing for us? To be alert. Our thought life. <laughs> and today, you know, I, I not, this you know, but we live in such a visual culture don't we? Where everything is visualized. You know, and, you know, just everything about our culture is just visual, visual, visual. And those who promote the smut and crap of culture know that, so that's what they feed you. And whether it's marketing and selling a product or, or whatever it can be, that, that visualization hook lures you in. And so you just have to, okay, what am I going to do with that? And you start to say, when this comes, this is what I'm going to do. When this happens, this is what I'm going to do. But it's an intrinsic thing. It is. The it, it, it is. And, Glenn, you must decide to do it. I can't tell you how to do this. But you don't decide to do it. You want to do it. That's right. It's, it becomes an intention of your will. I want to do this. Ben, this is how I'm going to do it. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit. I mean, all of those things meshing together. But this is not just a wonderful, spiritually sounding, this is a really important command. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things of, that are on earth. My pastor's doing a series on 1 Corinthians, and one of his thesis points comes up every message is, 21st century America is very similar to 1st century Kant, because it's Corinthian, so he's talking about that. And, and I totally agree with him on that. And it, when you really understand that, you, you have to understand these dear Corinthians have come to know Christ, and they live in a pagan, immoral, disgusting cesspool. And Paul is telling them how to live for Jesus. So you have Americans living in a cesspool. And increasingly, I don't know if you saw the new Pew Research study that just came out last week. I mean, it's really, it's, it's really concerning the, the level of religiosity in America. Seven years ago, the, in their survey, the nuns, not the nuns with the habits, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns on the category, was 17%, 16%, excuse me. Now it's 24%. What that means is, they don't identify themselves in any way. It doesn't mean they're all atheists, but they just don't identify themselves with any religious label. Do you believe in God? Well, I don't know, maybe. But they just they don't have they don't fit in any category. And the millennial generation, which is they're starting now getting into leadership and all of that, fifty-three percent of them do not go to church. Fifty-three percent. <clears throat> That's the next generation 
of the top leaders. And so you're starting to see, and part of their conclusion, they have they break it down so many other ways. It's a very helpful study. But everything that defined the consensus of American civilization is broken down. There is no consensus on our civilization. American civilization was based on the Enlightenment understanding of rights and the Protestant slash Christian ethical standards and systems. That provided the moral ethical framework for a democratic society based on rights and liberties. That consensus is shattered. Now American civilization is built on two pillars, a basic belief in the authority of science and a basic belief in the authority of human autonomy. In either one of those, where's God? Where's the ethical framework that's sourced in God? It doesn't exist. And so Christopher Lash, in the story, wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism because that's where we are. What people now turn to for meaning and purpose in life is the manager and the therapist. That's where they turn. The manager who can manage everything for them, tell them what to do and how to structure things, and the therapist. And I'm not down on therapy. What I mean is not the religious leader, not their pastor, but the therapist to make them feel good about themselves. And as people who don't give a hoot about Christianity are saying, this is disastrous because you can't build a civilization on these two pillars. So what's Paul saying? Because this was the pillar of Greco-Roman society. Human autonomy and doing whatever you want. The only thing you couldn't do was cross the Roman Empire. Then they'd crush you. But other than that, I mean, my daughter and I, she, when she was at Westside, she was in a Latin club, and so I went with her to Italy one time, and we took a side trip. The group took a side trip down to Pompeii. Have any of you been to Pompeii? Yes. Oh, my. I mean, if you want to know what, you know, Mount Vesuvius destroyed that city in AD 79, that shows you what Greco-Roman society was like. Do you know how they decorated their walls? These frescoes of some of the most gross, immoral acts you can imagine. That's how they decorated their homes. Because, you know, the city has froze that city in time. And you see, you, I was embarrassed for my daughter to see this stuff. And then the other thing I couldn't believe, I was absolutely stunned by this. There were 42 brothels in Pompeii. And do you know how you found out where they were? There were signs all along. You, you still see them because they were preserved. An enlarged male phallus gave you the direction sign. Can you imagine that? Well, American society is sort of, you know, you want to access anything, just a couple clicks on your computer and you're there. The hookup culture is driving our culture. And so you just, well, so it's kind of the same thing. So what's Paul saying? To these Colossians, Greco-Roman people, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are here. Not the things you see all around you in Colossae or switch to Corinth. Not the things you see all around you in Corinth. Set your minds on things that are above. Set your mind on the things that matter to God. So many distractions. They are. From a godly... That, that's exactly right. That's why... That's why you and I must have a strategy of how we're going to handle all these distractions. Because those distractions are not going to go away. Right. They're still there. Amen. I was just thinking about being a pastor. The church has a lot of people. 
how do you encourage him in light of this increased depravity occurring in the United States? Teach Colossians 3, 1 and 2. <laughs> and I, I know Daniel quite well. I know he's doing that. I know he's teaching and preaching his people. And then he'll, the other thing that I know you're all, is live it. Don't just teach it, live it. Well, you're closing notebooks and closing Bibles. Now, I only have a quarter hour. I usually go two more minutes, but I guess I'm done today. All right. <laughs> This is heavy stuff, and I expected to get into about verse 9 today. Oh, my. So we barely got two verses done. But, uh, and we didn't even get to verse 3 and 4, which are quite wonderful. So we'll get to those next week. Help me to remember to start with verse 3. But the, I did, I really got animated today, man. I hope I didn't get too animated. I was really getting kind of. Because I feel strongly about this stuff. I, really, I worked with young men most of my life in a college-age situation, and I know what they wanted to do and how they wanted to live, but they were typical 19-year-old kids struggling with a lot of the stuff. And I watched them grow. I watched them get out of a lot of that. And that's just, that's still, it's the same thing. But today, I mean, I look at my grandchildren, and I think, what kind of culture? Now, they live in England, but what what kind of culture are they growing up in? You know, and you think it's hard to be, it's hard to be optimistic when just the human level. And yet we are to be because of what the Lord has done. So I hope this is good. So I would encourage you, the takeaway for this, this, this day's lesson is make sure you have a strategy for holiness in your life, especially in your thought life. Just make sure, I mean, don't, don't ignore these things. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter where you are. This is really important. You keep seeing it over and over again. Your thought life is important. Take Philippians 4 8 and say, okay, how do I apply this now to my life? What does that mean for me? Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the Word of God being kind of the central element of the renewal of our minds. It's part of how we develop that new perspective where we're we're seeking the things that are above, the eternal dimension of things, seeking to glorify you in everything we do and say, desiring and having the passion for serving you so that when we go to be with you, we hear you say, well done, you finished well. Also to have that clear, discerning intentionality about our thought life. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. Two very important instructions. They sound spiritual, but they are absolutely transformational. And in my own personal life and in the lives of these men, help us to be serious about this, understanding that we stumble and fall, but at the same time, you pick us up, we put our hand back in yours, and we keep going forward. Because of our position, that's what establishes that. Since you have been raised with Christ, Paul says. There's no lack of clarity what he's arguing. But because that's true, it should affect how we live. May we be men of God. May we be men of faith. May we be men who are serious about our walk with you. May we be men who are serious about the process of sanctification in our lives. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for being merciful for being compassionate in our lives, for being long-suffering.
But most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Because of what he did, he's made all of this possible. He brings fulfillment and purpose and meaning to life because of what he's done for each one of us. For that, we love you, and we want to represent you well. In your son's name, amen. Amen.